the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, the founding editor of New Money Review. Fintech is not just about finance and technology. It's about politics, history and culture as well. Fintech is the trade war between Trump and China. It's the global battle over privacy and money laundering. And in an era when politicians exploit fears of immigration, it's worth remembering that Fintech is also a global race for human talent. The trouble is that we can only see, at best, a few steps ahead in what is a multi-dimensional chess game. One of the best people I know to try to make sense of all this is Lex Sokolin, who's global co-head of fintech at Consensus, a software company. Lex is an economist and lawyer who worked as an investment banker before switching to fintech at the beginning of the decade. Lex, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'd like to start by asking you to expand a bit on some comments you made in your email, uh, Future of Finance, that uh, I read with great interest earlier this week. You talked about the global struggle, I think is the right word, over fintech. You called fintech the global competition for regulation, talent, and macroeconomic supremacy. And you said that fintech is also the trade war between the US and China. Now, given that President Trump announced a new set of tariffs on China just last night. I wonder if you could expand a bit on those comments and talk about how we can measure what's going on in that uh, fintech center trade war and what are the likely outcomes of the current uh, conflict, if we can see it in those terms. Thanks so much for having me on um, uh, here for the conversation. And it's a it's a really interesting and broad question. And I think the the framing of what I was trying to say when uh, describing fintech as these global tectonic phenomena, you know, fintech is everything. Fintech is the trade war. Fintech is regulation. Fintech is a bubble. Fintech has already burst. Um, in trying to frame it in that way, I was painting a picture of just how pervasive financial services technology and the digitization of financial services has become to the point where it's touching absolutely everything and it's in the conversation um, essentially in every industry that you can imagine from media to technology to politics. And that has not been the case 10 years ago. Uh, and that was certainly not the case 20 years ago. Uh, people thought of technology as a tool to enable a particular business or product. And we have had a major reorganization of how customers, whether they're humans or or organizations, how they think about touching financial services as features inside of large platforms. So going back to the macroeconomic question, I think there is something really existential about um, this next leg of global competition. And although the news is full of discussion around tariffs on physical goods or about um, spyware inside of uh, 5G network enablement devices and hardware, uh, the real competition in my mind is around two things. The first is what is the human talent uh, enabled to do and how is it 
how are people taught? How much do they know about artificial intelligence? How much do they know about blockchain and crypto assets? Um, how are they working on it? Are there centers of innovation that enable them to get together, build the company, get funded, and, and take it to the next level? And that's number one. And then number two is the regime in which they operate. So you can think of a regulator or uh, an accelerator or an incubator as an entity that's resp responsible for making the soil of the garden uh, useful for bearing fruit rather than trying top down to kind of force some sort of outcome. So how good is the soil? How good is the regulation? What are people allowed to do? Is that Alex, let me ask you. Let, let me ask you, if, if I may, about those two questions in turn. So, in um, in very crude terms, is it possible um, uh, on, when it comes to competition, is it possible to say who's winning uh, at the moment? Is Facebook winning? Is uh, Ant Financial winning? Uh, or is it? Does, do these questions not really make any sense, given that they have their, <laughs> within their own uh, their own markets or their own kind of ecosystems? All of these things have grown up in really different ways. And I think if you look at Asia, uh, for sure, companies like Ant Financial and Tencent, uh, from, from a Western perspective, they're enviable in what they're able to do. And they're certainly winning just in terms of raw numbers of how many people are using those fintech solutions. And part of it is that there's no difference between the chat app and the financial services app and the bank and the money manager and really the government um, when you look at Ant Financial. And because of that, the features that customers can use are, um, are really broad uh, and more broadly available. You know, and one of the things that's kind of eye-opening is if you look at how many people are using Betterment or even Revolut, um, and then think about how many people are using the fintech uh, tools in Asia, it's mind-boggling. You know, So you take Revolut with a million customers, and you double that, uh, and you get 2 million, and you double that, and you get 4 million, and you double that, and double that, and double that, and you're still not at the scale um, at which the Asian fintechs operate. So uh, they're certainly winning uh, in terms of the next generation packaging, but I think on a on a global scale today, um, I would say the the Silicon Valley uh, tech firms, artificial intelligence and tech firms like Facebook and Google and Amazon, um, are are massively powerful in in finance. And then, if you look at the traditional finance incumbents, I would point to J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. Uh, and potentially some of the Spanish banks in Europe as um, as really understanding where the puck is going. So to summarize, the Asian players may have an advantage in terms of raw numbers, but what you're saying is that the human talent or the artificial intelligence um, expertise may still be centered in Silicon Valley and to some extent uh, in Europe. And I think a lot of the, the revenue uh, and the product sophistication is still centered in the West. So when you think about institutional capital markets, uh, asset allocation, wealth management, you know, corporate banking, uh, that is still very, uh, very centered in, in revenue terms in the West. The problem is that finance is being reoriented from sort of this manufacturing point of view, like how can you build the best factory for an investment fund or a bank? And it's going from manufacturing to distribution first. Um, which means what's the coolest way to access financial products in my phone 
or in my Uber or in my Tesla. Um, and that's a game that Americans and Europeans are not as good at. And when it comes to the human talent uh, aspect that you mentioned, the the kind of the, the I suppose the, the the future of the intellectual capital of the different regions around the world, does Asia have an advantage there? Are people being trained earlier and better in some of these skills? So it goes back to that earlier point of the two things, which is um, what's allowed to do and what's encouraged to do and, and where are the educational resources being placed. And then once you get people skilled up, um, are there centers of innovation in which they can participate? We know that on artificial intelligence uh, sort of skill set and training and education um, and on some symptoms like uh, the number of patents and the number of academic papers cited, that China is very rapidly caught up to the U.S. I mean, over a course of four years, um, there has been a massive emphasis on AI. Uh, and I believe that some of the implementations of AI are better than the Western counterpart. And that's simply because the data sets are five times as big. Um, so if you want to do machine vision and you have you know, five times as many data points, you're going to have a better outcome. Um, so I think on artificial intelligence in particular, there is, um, there's a chance that there's a significant and real chance the U.S. is slipping behind. Uh, on the, the other two kind of frontier platforms to talk about are uh, the blockchain infrastructure and crypto ecosystem, and then mixed reality, so as augmented and virtual reality. Um, and I think blockchain is especially a place where regulation matters tremendously. And I think at least today, I would say that um, the West is still in the game uh, and the mature and open capital markets in the West have have made crypto a thing that, that re is really trying to succeed uh, in those markets. But the some of the sort of conservatism from regulators and especially sort of the uncoordinated response in the US uh, to this type of innovation and the like gut reactions from many of the industry leaders uh, definitely uh, put, put us at being behind um, countries like China where they're thinking about blockchain as sort of a national sword in a global competition for economics. And I believe in other countries as well. I, I remember reading that uh, the uh, President Putin or some of his advisors had said that the you know the internet was the Americans, but the blockchain is ours. So the, the people, are, some countries are thinking about this very much in terms of national interests and national priorities, as they should be. I mean, uh, if you think about just the uh, where the economics have resided over the last century. Uh, you know, manufacturing shifted abroad and the Asian tigers that were uh, building at first fairly simple hardware uh, have all now, you know, caught up and in, in, in certain cases exceeded GDP per capita with the West. And that's because they've created extremely valuable, uh, technologically advanced economies uh, and places, you know, places like Russia, um, and Eastern Europe, they, they don't have that engine. Uh, so there is not the sort of car manufacturing or silicon, uh, you know, Intel type companies that live there. But from a intellectual 
prowess and software development perspective, you see regions that that have been historically kind of places you go to outsource software really making a move into these new areas because you don't need to have large manufacturing capacity. You just need a lot of really smart people with a math background um, to do you know, crypto economics, uh, to build artificial intelligence, to do trading systems. Um, and so you're going to see messaging coming out of those places right now that that kind of try to build on that strength. Yeah. So if, if you know, for the, the average observer, uh, such as me, uh, if I wanted to keep an eye on who's making most progress in this high-tech um, arms race, if that's the right term, uh, are there any particular sectors I should focus on to, to get a, a feel for who's winning? Are there any particular test cases that are particularly important? I mean, what's what's uh, top of your mind when it comes to keeping a feel, uh, getting a feel of what's going on, what's going on? So I think it, it depends on which of these themes, you know, which of these themes are interesting to you. And if you're really looking at the chunkiest uh, kind of flagpole initiatives, uh, there are a few things that you he- have to keep track of. So the first one is Facebook and Libra. Uh, without question, um, how that project is treated by governments and how they're able to build things forward is incredibly important. So traditionally, banks and sovereigns uh, have a really close relationship because the bank finances the sovereign to do its activity. And then the in return, it gets a license. And using that license, it gets to take rent in the form of interest rate spread. You know, very simply speaking, yeah. it's you get to you get to make money for free if you have that license. So, f- all of a sudden, there is now a collection of companies. They're really all just Silicon Valley companies. So it's it's a club. It's a high tech club. It is not Wall Street. It is not London. It is not Singapore. It is not Hong Kong, and it is not China. It is just California. Um, but what is interesting about that club is that in addition to Facebook, which has whatever it may be now, two and a half billion users. Uh, I think that's right. Maybe I'm making that up, but certainly uh, close to a billion. And it has in that same club, Uber, uh, and I believe Airbnb, and then the Visa MasterCard networks uh, are all circling around that. And so the difference between that group of companies and the banks is that that group of companies has a massive modern consumer footprint in all of our phones. So every time you pick up a cab, you you would touch this network. Every time you take a selfie, you would touch this network. Um, and that is a very different, I mean, that just mixes up the relationship of who, what a bank is and who gets to play in that arena and who gets to make money off of it. So without question, we have to see how governments react to that the last point I'll make, <laughs> I'll make on that is, um, you know, it used to be that financing by um, financial institutions could put politicians into power, uh, and in today's world, Facebook is much more relevant in terms of putting politicians into power, and so I think that's another factor that will determine whether you know this consortium will get to do what it's doing. So th- that's number one. Uh, number two is I think there is still massive open source innovation happening uh, all across the world, and 
Uh, it's kind of the combination of the fintech startup ecosystem with the Bitcoin and crypto asset movement, where you take the, the distribution capabilities, the sort of the human touch capabilities of a company like a SoFi or Revolut or Robinhood or Betterment um, or Acorns. So all of these fintechs that are really good at some particular financial institution case. And I'm sure you have three or four of these companies on your phone to deal with banking or lending or investments. And then you take that and combine it with what is now the uh, increasingly smart uh, programmable uh, version of financial services that's manufactured on crypto networks like Ethereum uh, or that are inherent inside of Bitcoin or uh, are built on private chains by uh, JP Morgan or UBS. And watching how these two things connect, I think will tell you a lot about the future of um, how people consume financial services. So we already know that JP Morgan, you know, has its own uh, crypto coin that that is being used internally in its business. Uh, similar similar projects by the large investment banks, and I think with time that's going to bleed out uh, and into the fintech apps that we're already used to seeing. So I'd say that's. So you're looking for an, you're looking for an integration of the uh, fintech apps with some core infrastructure, whether it's a public uh, network like. Bitcoin or Ethereum or one of these bank-based blockchain networks. Yep, absolutely. I think it's this bundling of technology into a single experience is is pretty much inevitable. And, you know, you can think about as, uh, you know, a a restaurant. So there's the front of the house that brings out the the food for you um, and that greets the customers and has all the client interactions. And that's the the fintech interface. It's the thing that lives in your phone and you interact with. It used to be a human being. Now there's more and more technology in there. And then the back of the restaurant, the kitchen, makes the food that they bring out. uh, And the food is being made in a better and better way. It, It is more and more delicious. It is easier to make. The ingredients are fresher and more organic. You know, so you can think of kind of the digital assets as this more organic uh, version of financial services that is more immediate, better, you know, has better traceability, is scarce out of the box, uh, out of the box, can be more compliant if you build the right tools into it. And so these things, I mean, by, by their own nature, they just have to come together. Okay. And let's talk about fintech valuations. You made um, uh, at the beginning of your um, long piece on Monday, you talked about fintech being the next bubble to burst, but maybe it's burst already. What, what, what did you mean by that? Is this a, looking at different regions of the world and, and drawing different conclusions? Or you know, we, you feel that we're close to a peak, uh, but we're not sure whether we've arrived there yet? So that comment, I would say the, the context for that comment is you take two people, uh, both working in fintech. One person might have a Wall Street background and is now doing you know, a technology implementation of something in finance that they did before. And then you take another person and let's say they're a technology person, they're a startup person from the West Coast, and they worked at Facebook or Dropbox or something like that. And now they've moved into finance, you know, and so they're they're building uh, a finance app, but using a startup methodology. 
And those two people looking at exactly the same thing are going to have diametrically opposite views. So somebody will look at um, Robinhood or Plaid, you know, and Robinhood is five to 10 million users these days. And I think uh, Plaid's aggregating uh, millions of accounts. And the startup person will say, a unicorn valuation, a billion dollar valuation for that company is cheap. You know, Robinhood should be worth seven billion, or it should be worth fifteen billion, um, because of the the number of eyeballs and engagement it has. And so, for a lot of the tech investors, they think of uh, the current fintech unicorns as these super successful platforms that are displacing the customer relationships of the traditional banks and will become these you know amazons or marketplaces of financial services product that millennials and other gen like kind of the younger generations are engaged with and so massive dis- disintermediation of the wells fargo's and jp morgans and as a result you know multi multi billion dollar companies coming out of it the finance person can look at exactly the same asset and say, I mean, this it's a trash asset. Uh, every incremental customer you lose money on, uh, you know, costs you 300 bucks to acquire a customer. You're making 20 bucks per year if you're lucky. Um, and so, of course, you're going to get all of these users engaging with your product because you're essentially giving away free candy to them. Um, and that's costing you venture financing. And so the the interesting thing that kind of fuels this um, this bubble or this overvaluation are investors like SoftBank. You know, so SoftBank, uh, I think the number is SoftBank's stake in Alibaba, which is the parent of Ant Financial in China, just yielded them around eleven billion uh, in proceeds, and that's not even their entire stake. And broader than that, SoftBank raised their second $100 billion vision fund. And the point of a $100 billion vision fund is to take over and destroy traditional markets. I mean, you're not seeding 500K little companies with a $100 billion fund. You're writing $250 million to $5 billion checks into companies that have the potential to get somewhere in the market. And that's what SoFi and you know other unicorns are getting is this kind of overvaluation from uh, the large flow of capital into the space and pretty price insensitive investors. And so we're in the simultaneous moment where like clearly some of these fintech companies don't make any economic sense. I mean, it's just, they'll never pay back the investment period or the money that they've taken in. But at the same time, there is no end in sight. I mean, if you are sitting on a 5 million or a 10 million user base and you're touching financial services, I just don't see how, I don't see a way to fail because there's going to be continued sort of price insensitive capital willing to keep you going on that journey. So do you think we're likely to stay in this kind of schizophrenic world for a while longer where as you described it, depending on whether you come from the Silicon Valley background or, or or a financial sector background, you view the same business opportunity with completely different uh, uh, via completely different spectacles. You you know one person views it as a as a huge growth story, the other as a, as a kind of money money losing uh, you know an endlessly money losing um, uh, 
uh, venture that we, you know, eventually will go bust? I mean, are we going to stay with this uh, kind of dual reality indefinitely or could something shake things up? So I don't see a, an imminent change. I think in the short to medium term, I think both of, both of these um, both of these vectors will coexist, and the at least for for that duration of time, there is continued increased fintech funding that's looking to back these companies across every geography. And if you look at the year on year. Um, financing numbers, it, you know, more capital is coming into fintech, not less. Um, that that is not slowing down. Uh, so it doesn't seem to me that there is real pressure on these companies to perform uh, or to to build models that are more f- fundamentally economic. I would say that there is a a structural reason for why this is the outcome, and the structural reason is that companies are just far less interested in, in going public. Because it used to be you would go public and raise, you know, fifty million or a hundred million dollars, and you might be a small cap or uh, a mid cap public company, and so your progress would be subject to investor scrutiny and transparency and corporate governance and controls fairly early on in your, in, in the journey, and then a, the regular investor through ETFs or through their pension or or you know regular. Uh, traditional investment vehicles would be able to get exposure to something like a Microsoft or an Apple in its early stage. That is no longer the case. Uh, Uber, WeWork, those types of unicorns uh, have no reason to go public in much earlier in, in their in their journey. And so, as a result of that, the alpha creation is being captured in VC and private equity. It is not hitting regular investors. Uh, they don't have exposure to it. And by the time they have exposure to it, it's an overpriced asset that uh, is going public in order to you know, make whole all the people who have already paid for it too much along the way. And so I think the... Doesn't, sorry to interrupt you, Alex. So doesn't that uh, thinking um, eventually hit a brick wall? At some point, the... You know the 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 very rich uh, insiders or early venture capital investors are going to have to share a bit of the pie with the public. Otherwise, uh, there will be a backlash. Surely, I mean, people if, if people feel that they're being just you know the public equity markets are just being used as a way for these people to cash out and to offload onto ETFs or indices, then that will create a some kind of reaction, presumably. Yeah, I mean, the question is a backlash from who, right? Who's really empowered to to have a reaction? Um, stock pickers are systemically dead. Uh, the stock markets are really a place for robots to do high frequency trading around the large movements of passive indices, which are put together by machines uh, and plugged into large asset allocations anyway. Um, and so, and then you have other pieces like regulation, like MIFID, um, disintermediating or sort of lowering the power of equity research uh, and and removing equity research from the equation. So it's even harder to uh, to generate alpha. And then on a broader basis, fewer and fewer people believe that active managers can outperform, and and because of that. You have compression in pricing, and you know the the talent pool is under pressure. So I think it's it's really hard to push back on this uh, on this broad trend. And the only you know in a somewhat self serving way, I'm I 
I do think the only way to push back at the alpha staying in the private markets is to find a way for regular people to access the private markets and kind of erase that boundary. Uh, and historically, that boundary is regulation and uh, legal requirements and complexity and paper and illiquidity. And so digital assets uh, and various crypto wrappers, cryptocurrencies and securities inside of crypto wrappers, um, I think are, are the path to break that down. And so, uh, you know, as a... So the, the general public could access these investment opportunities at an earlier stage in their life cycles through tokenization and similar technologies based on blockchains. Absolutely. So, you know, to give you an example, and this is something we're working at, uh, working on at Consensus and then others, others in blockchain are working on as well. And then 10 years ago, this was something I was working on as a robo-advisor entrepreneur. So if you think about 2000 and let's say 2006, and you think about how people get their investment advice, you know, how, if you have a million dollars to invest, you might go to Goldman Sachs and they'll give you an asset allocation. And in that asset allocation will be equities, fixed income, um, and probably private equity and hedge funds and commodities and real estate. And you would pay one and a half percent for all of that. And an expensive person would explain it to you. And you, you, know, you would interact with that through paper and a human being maybe once every quarter. And so you fast forward from that one step, 10 years from 2006 to 2016, after the fintech and robo-advisor movement. And a lot of that complexity has been reduced down into the mobile phone. So you can open up Betterment or Personal Capital or even Acorns and get an asset allocation. And in that asset allocation today are ETFs representing equities and fixed income and commodities and real estate. Um, and to, and you know, alternatives really are missing. They're not integrated into it yet, but at least you can get that asset allocation for, you know, 10,000 or a thousand dollars. And so where I think the digital asset movement, the sort of manufacturing back of the restaurant thing that I was talking about before, um, where the digital asset movement is going to get us is in 10 years, you're not going to be like opening up this app that manages that does things to securities somewhere else and you have this interface, you're just going to be opening up, you're just going to have a, a, a portfolio or a token where the token itself will have all of these things in it. The token itself will be an asset allocation and in it will be fixed income and equities and commodities and real estate and most likely venture capital and private equity. And they themselves will be uh, tokenized and included in this portfolio. And this portfolio will be, you know, rebalanced in real time and then customized to you as a human being. But it's not going to be external software that somehow affects it. It's going to, th that those rules and the qualities of those investments are going to live in the token itself. So, you're so gonna it won't be a fund as we, as we currently understand a, an investment fund, a, a mutual fund or a, uh, something similar. I would say it's, if you think about today, a fund, it's kind of this uh, unit to which other things happen externally, you know, so the fund is moved uh, through, let's say the ACAT system, or you buy more or less of a fund 
based on uh, a rebalancing algorithm inside of a trading software used by a financial advisor. And that's that financial advisor pays a subscription for that trading software from their custodian. You know, so, so there's like all this value chain stuff that lives outside of the fund, I think is going to live inside of the fund itself. And that fund is going to travel and be instantiated on the blockchain network. And that's what that, that is what you're going to have in your pocket. Okay. Uh, okay. Sounds like we're going to need a whole, a whole set of uh, new regulations to uh, reflect the <laughs> changes in technology or what, what, what is now theoretically possible. It's, it's a difficult question. Uh, th- there is, there's a couple of ways to, to approach the regulatory question. So you can say regulations stay exactly the same. We're technology agnostic and we're just going to apply our categorizations to the technologies as, as it is. And I think the, the U S is sticking to those guns. There are other jurisdictions. If you think about France or Japan, um, where the regulations wrap around um, the technology a little bit more, and they start with what a crypto asset is, and then back out into how consumers should be protected. You know, so from a technology point of view, there's really very, very little difference from, let's say, having a crypto cat in your wallet and directing the crypto cat to perform some action. Uh, you know, like like have a crypto kitten and a security that that is an ownership security and some sort of economic asset, and directing a vote in the organization that you are you are kind of representing an ownership in with that instrument from a software. So perspective, those people who laughed thing. at uh, crypto kitties as being a kind of insane use of the Ethereum blockchain a couple of years ago uh, should maybe rethink what their their criticisms and, and realize that actually that this was performing a valuable uh, uh, lesson for all of us. I would say that um, this, this might be, this is a silly claim, but it's, I think it's actually true, which is all great. Re- well, not all several large platform shifts have started with pictures of cats. Uh, I mean, it, it is, it's the, you know, we're humans and we like, we like animals and that's what it is. And you would not have artificial, you would not have Tesla and self-driving cars if you didn't have pictures of cats and dogs. I mean, there's a, it's a but for requirement to have millions of pictures of cats and dogs in order to build machine vision. I mean, that, that is how this, you know, the, the Stanford competition for machine vision, I think, um, uh, was graded. If you can tell the difference between A or B between a cat and a dog. And then there's only a couple more steps between that and teaching a robot to see and to move and to think. So, uh, you know, there, you have at least that example. So we should keep it. We should all try and keep an, as open uh, a mind as possible. And when we're trying to follow what's going on. Absolutely. Lex, thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can support New Money Review by visiting patreon.com p 
p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash new money review and becoming a patron of the site. Your support will help us cover this fast growing area of finance independently and in depth. You can also support us in cryptocurrency. Our wallet addresses for Bitcoin, Ether and Litecoin are published on the homepage of our website in the right margin.